This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. It was the most miraculous thing to see what my dog had done for me, which was to teach me that if you fear being alone and you open yourself up and you sort of let yourself fall backwards, the arms of your community will be there for you. You have to open yourself up first and you have to let people know you need them. And I did. And they were there. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Lessons from an Old Dog with our esteemed guest, Jenna Blum. Jenna is the New York Times and number one internationally best-selling author of novels, Those Who Save Us, The Storm Chasers, and The Lost Family. She was voted one of Oprah Reader's Top 30 Women Writers and is the CEO and co-founder of a literary social media marketing company, A Mighty Blaze. Jenna is based in Boston, where she's taught workshops at Grub Street Writers for over 20 years and lives across from Woodrow's Bench. We're going to talk about Woodrow. Hi, Jenna. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I was just, I just, I got taken right away with Woodrow. I I, I finished your book this morning, which we'll get into, but I'm really moved, um, which is why I got into Woodrow before even saying hello to you. Um, I feel like I know Woodrow. Um, So before we dive in there, tell tell us about, like, this is your first, um, this is your first memoir, this first piece of work, and you have this whole life before as a writer. Tell us about yourself leading up to this. Yes, thank you. Great question. Great invitation. So I've been a writer since I was four years old. My dad was also a writer. He was a news writer and wrote for CBS. So he worked for Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and Harry Wiesner. And I grew up listening to the sound of his typewriter as my constant soundtrack. And all I ever wanted to do was be a writer like my dad. And I'm very stubborn and very determined. So it took me only about 30 years to (laughs) start writing as a professional, uh, submitting stories and writing novels that didn't go anywhere while I was working in the food service industry. And finally, I sort of bludgeoned my way in with my first novel, Those Who Save Us, and continued from there in a very blessed and very lucky trajectory bolstered by a lot of hard work. I never thought I would write a memoir or as my friend Jane Roper and I call it a memoir. Jane is also (laughs) a a fiction writer and she's written memoirs Mm -hmm. because I thought I 
don't think that like the great memoir writers I've read, that I have anything to say to anybody that is helpful. And I feel Mm -hmm. as though that's why I read memoir. That's why other people read memoirs to sort of get inside somebody else's experience, but also receive a blueprint for their own lives and maybe something difficult they're going through. Mm -hmm. And then in 2018 slash 2019, along came my beloved Black Lab, Woodrow's last chapter, And what his last seven months in particular taught me was so groundbreaking and so heartwarming and also so bittersweet and difficult that I thought this, this is something that I could finally write my memoir about because Mm -hmm. anybody who has ever loved and lost an old dog or experienced grief in any form, Mm -hmm. I hope will be helped by what I went through with Woodrow and my Mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And, um, and this book, uh, this memoir is Woodrow on the bench. And that's the bench that you live near. Um, you know, I'm going to start with the end just because uh, it's so present for me. Um, as, of course, as you're reading the book, we know where this, we know where this story is going as um, Woodrow is aging. And, um, and it just brought me back to a few years ago, we, we lost our 16-year-old uh, dog. And... Um, I just, you know, it left me not only like sad and mourning and, um, reprocessing, but what I would have done differently if, you know, having just being distracted, well, I don't want to say distracted, you know, three kids work, um, busyness and, you know, the wanting to just have that time and give him more care and do all these things that I just, it's so beautiful what you did with Woodrow. You know, I mean, it just, it just, it's a story of, um, gosh, it's a, it's a love story. It's a story of, um, compassion and patience and, um, just love of what you did for him, but then what he did for you and everyone else who came into contact with him. Thank you so much. I had, I suppose, the luxury of time to devote to Woodrow because I am sort of anomalously, maybe, um, not married at the moment um, and don't have kids, which is sort of unusual for somebody my age. I'm 50 and had made that choice deliberately because I had thought in my childbearing years that I could not be a writer and also raise children and do both of those things well because I tend to be very single task oriented. And so I had Woodrow and I had my career and I had a series of relationships with lovely men who came and went, um, like in the song of J. Alfred Prufrock, like they, they come and go. Um, and um, so when Woodrow was in his dotage and he received in his 15th year a diagnosis of congestive heart failure, I was between relationships and I had the time to devote to him and also the the fear of doing that because <clears throat> excuse me the book opens with my consciousness from when he's 13 years old and starting to get really lame as labs often do and his first white hair and his fur hidden in his fur and then his George Clooney gray and <laughs> that that constant awareness of the Woodrow age clock ticking forward and so I was kind of practicing and rehearsing his demise mm-hmm. um, and pre-grieving it before he actually got very sick. And the whole experience was like a spectrum that shaded from like grays into something that was much darker. 
I was really worried about being on my own without my dog after he went. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was sort of Niagara Falls moment where I would just drop over in a barrel and maybe never be seen from again because Woodrow really was my structure. He was my joy. He connected me with other people. Um, and so the last months that I spent with him on the park bench across the street from our apartment, which was as far as he could go because he couldn't walk and I had to carry him over there, that taught me about opening myself up to other ways of not being alone. Um by force. I mean, it was right. not something I really wanted to do. I thought I yeah. had sort of settled into my life as a, as a misanthrope and as a writer and as somebody who protected that time very jealously. And then all of a sudden we were just a sitting target for all these people who wanted to talk and help. And that was an amazing gift to me that he gave me. Well, and that, that relationship and, um, you know, it's that relationship is so powerful and, um, I'll even, you know, go far. Uh, the parenting relationship is so powerful that it changes you. It changes your priorities. It changes the way that you think you would do things. And it changes also your way of, like, you're never the same. That's true. And uh, although I had chosen not to have children, um, I'm not really sure that I chose to be a dog mom either. I just thought I was getting a dog when right. I got Woodrow. Right. I, my then boyfriend found this lab breeder and we went to quote, look at some puppies end quote. And of course, nobody ever looks at a lab puppy without coming home with the lab puppy. And although I had grown up with dogs as a kid, I didn't really understand at that point what it meant to be responsible for a dependent creature who had a heart. And I remember taking a nap with baby puppy Woodrow when he was just like a sack of fur. You know, maybe he was like 10 months old and he was either like this gelid little sack who would lie on my chest while I was on the couch or he was like the Tasmanian devil, like destroying everything. And I remember picking him up and feeling his little hummingbird heart beating and just being struck with wonder by the fact that this was a creature, a living creature who was completely dependent upon me for everything. And that was a real watershed moment, as were the subsequent days of Googling everything I could about like how to keep puppy from eating a chair and how to keep mm-hmm. puppy from jumping on you and how to keep puppy from, you know, eating electric cords and what happens if puppy eats chair. So, you know, I, I had that sort of quick introduction to what it was like to be a responsible caretaker for a, a creature who seemed hell bent on destroying himself at every turn. Um, and very energetic. And that lasted all the way up to when he was 15, when I was still his dog parent and he needed me again for everything from eating where I would hand feed him his food because he wasn't really very interested um, and making him special food and carrying this 85 pound dog up and down my building stairs to my apartment, 16 stairs um, and developing like one really strong arm that moms call the baby bump from carrying their kids and the and the baby yeah. carriers. I had that from carrying Woodrow and, and, you know, he was wearing diapers at the end too. So I know what that was like to, to deal with that sort of incontinence. And it was not a question for me. It was a yeah. no brainer. Like my dog needed me. He was dependent on me. Of course I was going to be there for him. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, again, like looking back, you never would, like, would you ever, did you ever imagine yourself having that sort of devotion? Like just, because I mean, for those of you, when you read the book, like there was never a question, Jenna, like there was never a question. Um, even when others were saying, you know, I think you should do this or you shouldn't do this or it's time for this. You're like, nope, we're good. I got this. 
Yeah. And I wonder what reader reaction will be to my experiences with Woodrow, because I'm well aware that many people who are dog parents would put their pets down when the pet started to have a lot of trouble walking. Um, Certainly when Woodrow had his congestive heart failure diagnosis, he was on a lot of medication that was very expensive. It was hard for him to breathe. Like He really didn't want to eat very much. His appetence was going. Um, and it was a lot of work for me to carry him up and down those stairs. Right. And also I would wake in the night and he would be having like these moments of incontinence in every way and in every direction. And it was like living in a geriatric nursing home for dogs. And it was just me. Mm-hmm. There was never a question in my mind that I would keep him with me until, as Anna Quinlan said about her own old dog, his nose and his tail stopped working. If he could still mm. sniff and enjoy some food and if he could wag when he saw me or his canine friends or human friends, I was going to give him that time mm-hmm. no matter what it took. So yeah. I canceled all of my business obligations and as much as I could stayed with him on the bench and on his rug with his toys, like his stinky chicky and his you know, his dragon and his hot dog toy and and gave him that time. And I don't think any other parent who's really in love with their creature would do any different. So I will be curious to hear yeah. what people think about that level of care. Mm-hmm. Well, and something that was really helpful uh, for me to read and w- and I would have been helpful when we were having to go through this decision a few years back um, was the list, the list, the checklist with points of, of um, you'll say it better than me. It's not the pros and cons, but it's really like what's working and what's not working, right? The positive and the negative. Tell everyone about that because it does help, I think, to see it objectively because it's so hard. I mean, ultimately, our vet said what um, yours did, which is like, you'll know. But you kind of do and you kind of don't when you're in the middle of that. It's really hard to assess and there's so much emotion about it. I think unlike other losses in our lives, which get handed to us um, without any choice on our part, it is our choice as humans when to help our dogs cross the river. And that is such a terrible choice to make because you fear that it's the wrong moment. You fear doing it prematurely or you fear waiting too long and your pet is in pain. And so having some assessment tool to help you make that decision is incredibly helpful. And my vet, Dr. Mimi, mm-hmm. our home vet, Dr. Michelle Krieger, who is fantastic, gave me an assessment checklist that was from a website called Journeys, Pet Journeys. And it lays out um, points, eight different points from, is your pet able to eat? Do you understand what's happening to your pet? Can you travel and leave your pet with a sitter? Can your pet move around? Is your pet able to like remain clean and comfortable? And how much stress is this for you, the owner? So that's only a few of the points that are on the list, but it gives you a way to score all of those questions. And if your pet is achieves a score of 80, he's a really healthy pet with no issues. And if your pet scores eight, it's definitely time to put your pet down. And when I first started on this journey with Woodrow, he was scoring in the mid thirties or forties. And at the end he was scoring an eight and the last night of his life, you know, he had been in pretty bad shape for a week before he finally went um, worse than usual and was doing sort of strange things like going to weird places in the house to hide and to lie down. He stopped eating again. But the night that he went, I knew like I knew, and he knew that when I took him to the animal hospital, that final time, there was a good chance he wasn't coming back. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did insist on taking him home so he could be put down at home by Dr. Mm-hmm. Mimi. But um, but I knew at that point 
there was just mm-hmm. this sort of a terrible resignation and and then a letting go. Yeah. Um, and yeah, grief, grief. And um, like, what's the word I would say palpable or not palpable? Like, it's just it's profound when that when that occurs. It was, a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it was a grief that was equivalent to and then different from losing my mom, which I had done the previous year. My mom had breast cancer and I lost her. And Woodrow was really old then. And I remember petitioning God in that sort of bargaining way that always works so well for everybody. <laughs> sure. But saying, I cannot be the person who loses my dog and my mom at the same time. Like, please just give me some more time with my dog. I really need that support and that structure. Um, right now. And that prayer was answered. So I had Woodrow for another year and a half, which was truly miraculous because he was like Methuselah. He was so old and you could barely see his teeth were like piano keys on a really old piano, like falling out every other day. Mm. And he was still there smiling at me and still there loving the ladies and and loving the life on his bench and inside with me. Um, But when he went, I was unhinged and I was at home with him and I had two dear friends with me plus the vet And after that, I had feared greatly sort of being alone and falling off the cliff. I was not alone for a second. Mm -hmm. My friends and my neighbors came and kept me company and sort of sat Shiva with me Mm -hmm. for 48 consecutive hours. Like even when I was asleep, there was somebody sleeping on my couch and I would wake up and there would be another person making tea for me and saying, can you eat anything today? And it was the most miraculous thing to see what my dog had done for me, which was to teach me that if you fear being alone, and you open yourself up and you sort of let yourself fall backwards, the arms of your community will be there for you. You have to open yourself up first and you have to let people know you need them. And Mm. I did. And they were there. Is that something that in the past would have not something you would have done um, or was harder for you to do? Yes. I think it's very hard to ask for help. I was actually doing an interview yesterday with my company, A Mighty Blaze, um, and the author who we were interviewing said, it's very hard for men, especially to ask for help. And I thought, oh no, it's really (laughs) hard for women to ask for help too. It's just hard across the board, men, women, non-binary, young, old. And I come from a family tradition, especially my mom's people were were pioneers in in the Midwest. And so we come from this sort of stoic position of never asking for help. It's Mm -hmm. admitting a weakness. And that was how I grew up in a sort of mode of self-sufficiency and was very proud of that. So caring for Woodrow was was humbling for me. And I think it was probably good that I was not partnered at that point because I would Mm -hmm. have leaned on my partner a lot for help as people lean on their family members. It's one of the lovely, lovely things about having a partner or a family you sort of take for granted perhaps that there will be somebody there to help you if your dog has an accident at three in the morning and can take the dog out for you or run the dog to the vet or just be there with you when you're grieving. And I didn't have that. So I was forced to text people in the middle of the night or forced to rely on the kindness of strangers to help me get Woodrow back across a busy street into the apartment, Um, forced to call people I didn't know, like dog sitters and dog walkers to say, hey, can you help me with my big old dog? And really forced to ask friends to come and sit with me because otherwise I wouldn't see another human being for a week while I was going through this. Mm-hmm. And it was shocking to me that people said yes. Right. If I was right. like, can you, can, you, can you please be with me in, in my dog's extremity? I know it sounds ridiculous. And people would say, no, it doesn't. He's your yeah. son. You love him. He's your charge and your darling. And of course, we will come and sit on the floor with you and feed him macaroni and cheese. We would be honored. Yeah. 
Like what good people, right? What right. amazing people. Well, I, and I think it seemed like you were shocked from this sort of the response, like, like how you were being perceived given your love and care on the bench and, and just right around your little neighborhood there, the things that people were saying to you and how inspired they were by you and Woodrow, like the relationship, like you, you didn't see that coming. It seemed like. Not at all. And I should describe the bench a little bit for your listeners. Yeah. So the bench is this park bench across the street from my house in downtown Boston um, it's nothing special. It's just a weathered city bench. There are like five of them on our block, but it was the one that Woodrow could get to because it was the closest. So every day, once I had canceled a lot of my book events um, or postponed them, we would just hobble across the street to the bench and Woodrow would whomp down in this patch of dirt that his body made next to the bench or on the ice. If it was winter, he didn't care his lab. And I would take my iPad out with the best of intentions of, of getting work done. And instead what happened is our friends who had dogs would come and sit with us in all weathers, rain, shine, snow, whatever. And total uh, strangers would also come over and say, oh, my gosh, this dog is so great. Because Woodrow was like a, a sort of a tractor beam in that way. He was a very elegant old dog. His nickname was Woodrow, the George Clooney of dogs. And <laughs> I would just sit on the bench and watch like an assembly line as people would come toward us intending to go about their day and be tractor beamed in by Woodrow's toothless smile and sort of elegance and and they would sit down on the ground with him total strangers and and talk to us and finally I, I realized it was not my job on the bench to do work it was my job to be open to people but mm. what surprised me about this was not that Woodrow could attract people because he had been sort of magnetic since he was a puppy he was just one of those dogs what surprised me was that people didn't perceive me as I had been perceiving myself for a couple of decades, which is as sort of a freak. Like mm -hmm. I had, again, chosen not to have kids. It's kind of unusual for a woman to do that, to prioritize her career in that way, for me to be unmarried at that point, um, and just to sort of live a non-traditional life by choice, but also with some wistfulness about what I didn't have. Mm -hmm. And I was always worried that people would say, what's wrong with you? Or be thinking, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you want this? Why didn't you do that? And so I felt this shame to be sitting on a bench alone with my old dog and asking myself the question, why was I alone? And how had I arrived at this midpoint of my life alone? And to know that my friends did not perceive me that way and in fact were happy to help and saw me as a role model for people who'd made different choices and also to have total strangers walk by and say, we see you, like you're not invisible. We look for you here every day. And it reaffirms our faith in this bond that you have to see you here with your dog every day. Like it helps us be kinder and more patient. That was so astonishing. Like it was such a miracle to me to know that I was seen. And just by showing up on my bench every day with my old dog that I was helping people, that was an astonishing gift. Mm -hmm. And people were people were part of their routine was going to see you in Woodrow. Like to, people, just random people. That is something they counted on. It was something that became a sort of benchmark in their day, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. And I get this as a city dweller. I think I've seen this in, in the country too. I have a house in the country and you can sit on your front porch and people walk by and say, hi, how are you doing today? And stop to talk. There's something... I think special about it in a city when you otherwise live 
in a kind of a hive. Like you're in mm-hmm. one apartment in a building that's honeycombed with apartment in a block that is honeycombed with other apartments. And you can be and feel very isolated in your own space. Mm-hmm. So the people you see in your neighborhood become very important to let you know that the clockwork of your neighborhood is working. Like mm-hmm. every day I look out my window and I see Tai Chi guy um, mm-hmm. doing his Tai Chi, you know, uh, on the on the green space across from my apartment. And during the pandemic, I didn't see him for a few months. And I was really worried about Tai Chi guy. Like, did he die? Was he attached right. to an event somewhere? And then he came back in about June of 2020. And I thought, oh, thank God, you know, the world is not totally gone to hell because there's Tai Chi guy. And so I have these people who I don't know, but I see every day. And Woodrow and I had become that sort of fixture for other people. But because of what I was doing with him and because of the apparent difficulty of me, mm-hmm. you know, really struggling physically to give him what he needed, we became a symbol for other people of a sort of devotion that I didn't even know that I was projecting. I was just mm-hmm. trying to do my job by him, mm-hmm. to be a good parent to him. Yeah, and a point you're bring up an excellent point. It's something that um, on another, a recent show, someone talked about the importance of connection and just even saying hi to people is a form of connection. And when you're talking about Tai Chi guy, you're making me think too. Um, so I have this, these few routes that I run regularly and you see the same people and you don't know their names. Um, you can know what they wear, you know, their dogs. Um, and there was this one guy who I actually did. We ended up, talking and under knowing people's names and saying hi by name. And then this is for a couple of years, then COVID hit and he was gone. And I too had the same worry. Every time I went running, I'm like, where's Scott? Where's Scott? And finally, um, I asked someone else that I would see every day who I didn't know then saw him talking to Scott. And I just stopped. And I said, Hey, can I ask you, have you seen Scott? And he said, um, he said, yes, I talked to him not that long ago. His um, dog walking client moved. And so he didn't have to walk on this trail anymore. And I had such relief, just like with Tai Chi guy, such relief. Um, these, so these are these connections. These are these connections that are so important to us, even when they seem, they seem trivial, but they're not. They do. They're kind of like firefly connections, I think. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of deep connections on the bench as well. Like I had people who came to sit with me every day. They were able and we would talk about their love lives or about their children's weddings or about their mom's passings and or just about neighborhood stuff. And those are my friends and neighbors who are, are, are really dear to me. And then the people who you see in passing who become that sort of what we think of as lighter human connection, they really are, they are sparks. I think they're sparks of humanity that connect us with each other. And and that was very reaffirming when I was not able to get Woodrow out at his regular time, which happens sometimes. I heard later that it threw people into a panic because they knew he was old and they thought he was dead. So, you know, every time I couldn't get out there for like three days or varied our routine at all, people would think, Oh my God, the Mm. old dog is gone. And when he did finally go, we had a ceremony on the bench because uh, Woodrow had a, a social media presence as well on Facebook and <laughs> Instagram and and now Twitter, where he commented upon the, his life and the foibles of my life and how silly I was to do anything except give him bacon all the time. And so when he passed, I put that information on social media and there was this outpouring of grief from people because that also is a firefly connection. People mm-hmm. would look for Woodrow every day to see what his views on life were. 
And my friend Stephen Kiernan, who's a a novelist, saw this and said, Jenna, you need to have a memorial um, because people are really unhinged. Like they're really going to miss Woodrow and you need to honor their feelings in some way. And that was like a swarm of fireflies, a swarm of little lights coming at me. So we had the ceremony on the bench and we live streamed it and Mm. left his photo, framed photo on the bench surrounded by candles that people bought. I did not bring them. Like other people brought candles for him and roses and rocks in the Jewish tradition. And for weeks afterwards, I would find notes um, in this bucket that I attached to the bench with a bike lock um, and filled with treats in memory of Woodrow. And there's a little plaque on it that says, in memory of Woodrow, who loved this bench. People left notes in it for weeks and weeks saying, dear Woodrow's parents, like dear Woodrow's mom, dear Woodrow, we miss you. You know, we miss seeing you. So it was (laughs) getting kind of choked up, but it was amazing connection with people I'd never met. And you can mean so much to people you never meet if mm-hmm. you just show up. Just show, yeah. And and Jenna, the importance of um, of grieving and uh, ceremony, ritual, and um, right, a space for people to do this is so 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 like you see how important it is for everyone. It is amazing that two years after Woodrow has gone, every day I can see the treat bucket and the bench from my front windows. And so every day I look up from what I'm writing and I see people going to the bucket with their dogs. Initially, the first time the dogs got a treat from the the new bucket, which I attached to the bench myself, I would ring bells and we would say, oh, an angel dog just got his wings. And then, you know, it sort of got folded into my daily routine and there's not quite as much bell ringing, although I definitely hope the angel dogs get their wings every time a dog Mm -hmm. gets a treat from the bucket. But I don't fill the bucket, Dan. Somebody else fills it. There there are bucket fairies out there, people in my neighborhood who keep that bucket filled with treats at all times. So the dogs always have those treats in memory of Woodrow. And when I go out and clean the bucket up or, you know, just like when it rains, it gets dirty. So I go out and swab it off. And I think... This is what it's like to tend a memorial in a cemetery, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's just a place of reverence. And it is Mm -hmm. so amazing to me how there's still a community that uplifts the memory of this dog Mm -hmm. and pays it forward to their own dogs and their people. It's an incredible connector as, as dogs and, and as children are. Yeah. Well, and he called you Mamo, right? So (laughs) he referred to you as Mamo. Yes, I was Mamu, and uh, of course, I never called him by his name. He was uh, some, some ridiculous name, like Snushta or something, and he'd be like, Mamu, that is a very stupid name. My name is Woodrow, <laughs> of dogs. Woodrow had a very specific voice that he would project into my head, and yes. my job was to simply beam it out to his social media channels, yeah. and it was all about how the dog could never get enough attention and was much grander than all the silly things that I was doing for him um, and was always starving and needed more food because labs are always starving. Mm -hmm. But from the time he was a baby puppy, he was the Woodrow and I was his mamu and I never questioned that. And so that's how I always heard him referring to me. Um, Mm -hmm. my My new dog, Henry, I have a black lab who's 18 months old now. And although I have the same parenting role with him, I couldn't have him calling me that. And I don't think he ever did call me that. He calls me lady. So he's like, lady, everything <laughs> is very peculiar right now. And I, I also am starving too. But lady, I don't know why there's not enough bacon on the floor for the dog. So very different personalities, same role. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, there was only one Woodrow and, and I was 
just his mamu, and that was how how it was. Mm. You're a you are a whisperer. You're a dog whisperer. Yes. Um, so I'm being I, told. So I'm being, yes. that would be a great honor. I uh, so I have to ask because of the nickname. Um, it seemed like the most common nickname for him was Kooks. That was his sort of end of life nickname. He probably had a different nickname mm. for every year of his life. And yeah, so I was calling him Kooks at that point. Mm-hmm. And of course, he would be saying to me, Mama, that is not my name. My name is Woodrow, the George Clooney of dogs. Like, get a grip. <laughs> so Woodrow, we just did the audiobook for Woodrow. And by me, I mean we and my narrator at HarperCollins, um, mm-hmm. Anne-Marie Gideon, who is so fantastic and so loving and a dog mom herself to a chocolate lab named Lucy, that she called me and said, I need to know what Woodrow's voice in this memoir sounds like. I want to make sure that I get it right. Mm. So we we ran through it several times. And I said, Woodrow to me sounded like a combination of Barack Obama and George Clooney. And she said, <laughs> well, thank God that's not a high bar. You know, so we went through that. So when I'm doing the Woodrow voice, it's like, Mamu, look, Mamu, you know, you are just not feeding the dog enough. Something is mm. so amiss. Get up and walk the dog. So that's kind of what he sounds like to me and hopefully now to everybody in the now whole world to, now to me that's for sure yeah. um he taught you so much um and those of you who read when you read the book you will learn um what would you say are the most the lessons that have have are so so impactful and changed you I think the most important one is still to ask for help and to be honest about what my emotional landscape looks like. When Woodrow passed, it was two months before the pandemic, and then the pandemic came and swept us all up in this unprecedented historical tsunami. I mean, unprecedented in our lifetimes and our parents Mm -hmm. and even grandparents. And at that point, I was living by myself. I didn't yet have Henry And I started a company called The Mighty Blaze that connects writers and readers online. And I had a lot of help with the company. Like I work with a lot of very talented and passionate creative professionals. So that was not a problem. And for me, work, knock on wood, has never been a problem. It's always my go-to. But emotionally, I still have a hard time asking for help. And I realized maybe midway into the pandemic when I turned 50, that if I didn't let people know that I had nobody to celebrate with, that I would be celebrating my 50th birthday by myself in a pandemic. And I thought, what would Woodrow want you to do here? Like, uh, You really have to let people know that you need them and you want their company and you love their company. And so because of the example that Woodrow set me and what he taught me, I reached out to my friends and as they did when he was sick, they said, of course we will be there. And so people came and celebrated with me on a rooftop outside in October. It was freezing they struggled up all these steps with like cornhole boards and clanking with whiskey bottles and bringing queso. And, you know, I have really amazing friends, but I still have to remind myself every day that this may always be a struggle for me to not put on a front Mm -hmm. and let people think she's Mm -hmm. fine. She's great. She's self-sufficient. Look at her. She's dazzling, you know, us on a professional level as I try really hard to do. Yeah, but also that I'm a person and am vulnerable and have these needs, and that mm-hmm. I think is the most important lesson. WWWD. What would Woodrow do? 
podcast right? and you put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, that's some good, that's good merch right there. WWWD. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Be- because that, when I think about what would Woodrow do and I'm, you know, imagining him, the picture in the book helps too, just to, to see him. But in my mind's eye, as I was imagining him, especially towards the end, and it's messy at the end in lots of different ways. Um, it's end of he was an also an end of life teacher because he allowed himself right to be fully cared for by you in every way, which is so vulnerable. Um, and one could say you're in a helpless situation, but he he allowed you to and trusted you to. I think that's one of the lessons that children and dogs teach us. Children and pets teach us throughout their lives, but especially when they're very young and very old. And although I don't have my own children, I'm 10 years older than my brother. And I cared for him as an infant and a toddler and a child because both my parents were working. So when I was a teenager, I was really raising my brother in a lot of those logistical, physical, hands-on, repetitive, you know, Mm -hmm. and very loving and enjoyable ways. And I remember when he was a baby, how totally dependent he was on me for everything while my mom was at work. And the same thing for Woodrow, when he was a puppy, you know, if puppies having accidents, you drop everything. And when people and pets are very old, they also lose their faculties in that way and have nobody else to care for them except you. So if you want to be a good human being, that's what you do. Some of the other lessons that Woodrow taught me were that I was fully capable of running out in downtown Boston onto a greenway across a busy street in my underwear because he was having a terrible accident and needed to get outside. He -hmm. taught me that when it was time for him to go out, I didn't have to put on my face. Like Mm -hmm. I'm from Jersey. I always have a face full of makeup. I put on cat eyes to go to the gym. No, no, no. You know, for seven (laughs) months I was sitting on that bench with my naked face hanging out. I had professional colleagues come to visit me in my apartment when I was on the floor with him in my underwear covered with dog food, like homemade dog food. Um, and these are bookstore events managers who normally I would have been really dolled up for out of respect. And they would come and sit with me and I just looked like poop. And you know, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. was okay. It yeah. was all okay. You don't have to be perfect. You can let people in. Um, yeah. And that was what he taught me. Oh, that's the big one. That's so human. And I, Matt, I mean, for you to be in that, to allow yourself to be in that situation. And also, I'm sure at first it was you weren't allowing your, you like you had to be in that situation kind of happened. And then over time, realizing it's okay, right? Like people like you for who you are. They like your work regardless of what you look like. And they're coming for you as the human. It's astonishing. My agent is always scolding me a little bit for this because when I do events, I like to put on a show for people online or or in person. And my agent is this fabulous French um, diva. And so she says, Jenna, nobody care what you look like. You are a writer. They care about what come out of your head and the stories that you tell. <laughs> and I think, well, you know, but I'm also vain and I like to get dressed up and so whatever. But it was it was true. What she had been trying to tell me my whole life was true is that you are human first and we all have frailties vulnerabilities. We all have our faces. And so I would be out on the bench with Woodrow having had three hours of sleep and sort of shaky hands because I was so tired and had just been out with him, you know, a couple hours before that in my same yoga pants I've been wearing for like a week because he really needed me. And 
nobody shied away from me or said, oh my God, you're so disgusting. You know, people would just come and sit and keep me company. So it was a great self-esteem restructuring. I got asked out once on the bench in this (laughs) state of being like flies around my head. And I thought, clearly you're blind and I feel sorry Mm -hmm. for you. I also have no sense of smell. But I mean, no, really, it it just taught me that it was okay to be human yeah, um, and to just be present. I think the other thing that he taught me and also that my mom taught me in that time right before they both passed is that there are only a few times in your life when you can step off the carousel of your obligations to other people, to yourself, to your work, and really fully engage in what is happening. And when somebody you love is dying, that time is so charged and so weighty and so incapable of being ignored. Like you're just there and you are present and you are in that time and you know, it's not going to last forever. So give yourself and the time and that person, that animal, the dignity of that time, if you can, um, just that intermission from your regular life where you're learning those lessons and you're just Mm -hmm. really there every moment and so aware of every moment. That is a great gift. Man, I feel like you just, you just like the drop the mic right there. And I'm just about to ask the parent footprint moment question. I feel like you just gave, you just gave it to us. Um, it's so, so important, um, to be there, to be present and to allow yourself to be so. It's really hard. I remember being in the shower at my mom's house the last day I ever saw her alive. And I didn't know it was going to be the last day I ever saw her alive. I thought that I was going to come back a week later after I took a little caretaking break. But I was very conscious of that time in a way that we're usually not conscious of time. And I thought the sun was coming through her window into her shower. And I just thought, this is such a beautiful and difficult moment. And when I come back again to see her, it will also be beautiful and difficult. And I need mm-hmm. to really hold that in both hands and really cherish it. And I felt so much the same with Woodrow. When he went, it was December and it was not pretty weather in downtown Boston. There was ice, there was sleet on ice, <laughs> there was mm-hmm. rain, there was mud, it was snow. And it was cumbersome and difficult and physically challenging at that point to care for him. And I was grateful for every single moment, even when I was cross with him, which I hated myself for and still have not forgiven myself for. Um, I know why I was, it was hard to care for him, but even still to not hold every moment of that experience in my hands, like a gift, um, seemed to me to be a sort of a desecration. So I am still grateful that each of those moments as tough as they were are imprinted Mm -hmm on me. And I think anybody who has gone through that kind of grief and loss knows how hard it is and knows how crucial it is to the experience of being alive. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've, I, we're gonna, I'm, I'm interested to see what you come up with for this question because you just gave us so much uh, wisdom. So here we go. The parent footprint moment question. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, an awareness of your parents and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your child, dog, and or those you love? Such an amazing question that I could unpack in about 60 different directions in many dimensions. The moment that comes to mind to me, and I'll see if I can run through this without crying, is 
when Woodrow was in congestive heart failure and he was breathing like Darth Vader had swallowed a vacuum cleaner, I ran him to this incredible hospital we have in Boston called the Angel Memorial Animal Hospital. And he was put in an oxygen tent and defied the laws of physics basically by coming out of it and being okay. But his cardiologist followed me out into the parking lot when I was taking him home um, in my Jeep and told me there is no cure for this condition. And sooner rather than later, you're going to have to make this difficult decision to help him cross the river. And Woodrow was in the backseat of my Jeep. He was ready to go home. He was looking at me with his shiny, roundy, roundy eyes, like happily, like he was leaving the bad place and he was going to go home with his mama and everything was okay. And we had escaped the Reaper for, you know, another couple of months. But I realized why that doctor had followed me out into the parking lot was that he didn't want to tell me that my dog was going to die in front of other people. Um, And so he gave me the dignity of a quiet moment. And so after he went back in the parking lot and I understood, I sat in the front seat with Woodrow in the back seat as he had done like thousands of times on thousands of trips. And I looked up at these clouds that were floating over the parking lot that were the remnants of a storm. They were these pink and gold clouds. And I was thinking about my parents who had both passed by that point and who loved dogs more than anything. Like my mom was a crazed dog person and my dad loved his dogs and they were terrible trainers, but they you know, were terrific dog lovers. And I remember saying to them, when the time comes, because it will come soon, I want you guys to watch out for Woodrow and I want you to take care of him and I can't do it anymore. (laughs) So damn it. Anyway, I would cry (laughs) saying this, but it was a moment when as a parent, you have to turn your beloved charge over to something that is bigger than you. And I know a lot of parents right now who are in my age group are sending their kids to college for the first time, are relinquishing their children back to school, um, even during the pandemic still you know, holding its grips on us, these terribly scary moments where you realize you cannot be the person who will be there for your beloved in all circumstances. And you have to relinquish them to the world and to the universe beyond that world to forces you can't see. And it's so awful and so scary. And it also is part of the grand pageantry of life that's bigger than us. That was my moment. Thank you. Thank you. Just need to give that a little bit for everyone. Um, As you so eloquently um, have tied this into parenting of all situations, of all ages, and um, of all parts of the journey. Uh, How we all ultimately realize at some point or another uh, we can't protect, we can't even guide, and um, we have to let go. Oh, okay. Um, Jenna, tell everyone um, where they can find the new memoir, Lessons from an Old Dog, um, and your other projects. Thank you. And thank you for these incredible, so connective questions and for this show that connects us all to each other, like the constellations that we are. So Woodrow on the Bench, 
Life Lessons from a Wise Old Dog will be available from HarperCollins on October 26th, and you can find it everywhere fine books are sold. I love to say this. So you can find it on bookshop.org. You can find it at your local indie bookstore if you're not able to go out because of the pandemic or um, any health restrictions you can order from those places online and support the indies. You could also get it on <clears throat> Amazon um, and Barnes and Noble and from my publisher, HarperCollins, on my website, which is www.jennablum.com. There are buy links everywhere. And I'm very accessible on social media. I love social media. So um, I am Jenna Blum on Facebook, Jenna Blum on Twitter, Jenna Blum on Instagram. Um, Woodrow also has his own social media, and he's now Woodrow on the Bench. Um, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and he speaks now from beyond the grave, which is really amazing. <laughs> and it's sort of commenting on his own publishing journey. So Woodrow <laughs> lives on. And mm. I would love you all to follow us and participate in the incredible journey that is going to be sharing this dog with even mm. more people in the world. Um, obviously, I'm going to have to get a lot of waterproof mascara for my tour. Um, but it is my my deep, deep hope that anybody yeah. who is struggling with any sort of loss, whether it is a beloved, beloved pet or a parent or a peer, like, please come to us and read this book so that we can all be together in the process of that, mm -hmm. that grief and let Woodrow and me hold you up as so many people held us up. Gosh, Jenna. Wow. Thank you. And this is about, th I mean, this story, everyone is about, is about life. Um, the journey of life and all of the emotions and experiences that go through being human. So thank you for being brave to tell your story, uh, your true story, and share that with all of us. It is my great privilege and my honor. Thank you for helping me share it. Well, everyone, uh, a powerful uh, and... Um, emotional show today. Uh, please share this with everyone you think will benefit um, and you know who those people are. Um, tell everyone about our community and um, just thank you for being a part of, of this community and of being human and these experiences. If you want more of Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan, check out our bonus episodes once a month exclusively on Stitcher Premium. To listen, just go to stitcherpremium.com slash Dr. Dan, click start free trial, select a monthly plan and sign up with the code Dr. Dan and you'll get a month of free listening. I'm having trouble finding my words, but I'm going to find them and uh, leave you with the question I ask myself every day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll dot com forward slash ads for more information go to exactlyrightmedia.com listen subscribe and leave us a review on apple podcasts stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts